Hi, I'm Kristen Shorten, and this is my extended chat with Victoria Cross recipient Mark Donaldson during the filming of Voodoo Medics. Mark Donaldson, uh, I'm currently 39 uh, and I've spent just under 15 years in the Australian military, primarily the Australian Army, and majority of that time was in the Australian Special Forces with the Special Air Service Regiment. So a total of seven trips to Afghanistan, two to Iraq and two to East Timor. Before that, I was pretty much a professional bum uh, who used to chase the snow and the surf around, around the world uh, for two years. Before that, just did a lot of labour work, a lot of labour hire. Uh, my claim to fame during that period was... Um, actually, I'll go back a step. My claim to fame during chasing the snow around the world was a, being a snowmaker. Uh, and which I made the snow for the 2002 Winter Olympics, uh, which an Australian won gold on, so I'll take a little bit of credit for that. So in the military we have um, nicknames or code names for different units and different skill sets. Uh, and one in particular was a kilo, and for us the kilo stood for a medic. Um, they're, they're the ones we kind of love the most when we need them um, but the ones we don't always think about when we don't need them so they're there for looking after us when we have coughs colds and sore holes and and the best part about them is when we have trauma they're, they're the guys we need guys and girls that we need on the ground they're a medic um, they're there to save our lives uh, and there's not many other jobs like them in the military that are so critical um, when that time comes so some of, the, some of the kilos for me that were memorable throughout my time in the military was um, with some individuals like Brad Watts, um, you know, John Walter, or Wall as we called him, um, Ken Grail Beard, and, and Dan Pronk, you know, from my mind. They were the, the, amongst others, but certainly they were the standouts in my mind um, and the ones that I remember working closely with over the years. For me, the really good kilos were the ones that were able to integrate into the troops seamlessly. So what I mean by that is they, they understood and shared the same code that we lived our lives by during that period. Um, what that does is that mutually makes us on the same level of understanding. So there's predictability there. And, and for us that predictability in combat is, is key. Whether it's a medic um, or whether it's another operator, if I know how they're going to react or if I know how they're going to be able to treat that situation and what they bring to it, um, and that goes both ways, then for me that's, that's a force multiplier. And, it, and it's a level of trust that can only come in that situation. You know, guys like Bronchi, Watsi and Wall, they're the ones that knew how to do that. And, and you just knew that the medic was always there. No matter what was happening, if you yelled out, called up medic, got on the radio and you needed that assistance, you could then get on with your job because you knew you had it, they had it in the, in, the, in the control of their own hands and, and, and how to look after that situation and look after themselves and the patient. Fitness is really important because they generally will have to carry, and, and certainly from the medic's point of view, um, heavier, more cumbersome um, items than what we may have to carry. Um, you know, There's no apologies for that because that's their job. From my experience over there in Afghanistan or Iraq, um, you very rarely saw the kilos um, having time off. 
Uh, and, and if they were having time off, what I saw, they were either coming and interacting and, and you know, engaging with the operators and soldiers and the rest of the staff around that base, or they were at the gym training, uh, or they were trying to organise some training for us. You know, whether it's whether it's live tissue training, or you know, it might have been mass casualty training, or some other type of trauma or incident that they've seen that they want to be able to make sure that the pathers and the medics, um, you know, uh, are, or CFAs, whatever it is, um, the combat first aiders, are, are ready and prepared for that job that they've got. So, do they have a lot of time off? Not really. It's not just the military side that they're always doing. They're always they're always doing this humanitarian element as well. I think the level of trauma that, that medics see, particularly in Afghanistan from my experience there, was, I mean, it's hard to put into words, it's tremendous. Um, and the trauma is not just from the people and the friends and the guys and girls that they work with day in, day out, you know, ranging from, from amputations um, through to death, uh, you know, gunshot wounds, um, shrapnel from rocket propelled grenades, um, blast injuries from IEDs. You know, and, and you don't need to get too graphic, I guess, but uh, all the way through to dealing that from, with civilians as well. These are people they don't even know that might have um, driven over a roadside bomb. You know, and now you have a, you have a car full of um, a local Afghan family that has been torn apart. Children, babies, uh, mothers that are pregnant, um, grandmothers, grandfathers, old people that are sick. You know, so it's not just the soldiers, not just young men who were fighting against each other. Was, the difference over there in Afghanistan was exactly that. It was fought in and amongst the people and they were the ones that suffered greatly as well. It's Again, it's a, my hat's off to them because the amount of trauma they see is huge. Much larger, I would say, than, than the general soldier. Um, they get to see the worst of the effect. Um, the aftermath, I suppose, of the actual combat itself and then have to even try and come back from that or bring someone back from that um, in that initial instance to keep them alive. So the, the trauma they see is, is exponential. The tempo of the 2008 trip for me was, um, I guess, a step change from past trips. It was a high tempo, you know, it was certainly high tempo. It ranged from a lot of night operations primarily to, um, I guess, one month block um, a lot of the gigs ran from like it was a nighttime gig and, and it rolled into a daytime that even then sometimes rolled back into a nighttime one, you know. Um, so there was periods where we might have been out for 24, 48 hours at a hit, um, just constantly on the go, resting where we could. In the best possible way, that was exciting um, because, again, you're there to do your job um, and not that we ever want anyone to lose anyone or anyone to get wounded. That, that totally changes their life, but um, there was an element of excitement around the fact that there was engagement and there was heavy engagement. And, and for a soldier, that's always, my opinion, that's always um, something that you, you, you want to be able to go and do your job, and that's a part of it. My love of the job is, is huge. Uh, I still love it. Today, I would go and do it right now if I was asked to. Um, however, we, you know, we make decisions and, and we move on. Uh, now that I've, I've left the military and not doing that job anymore. At heart though, I think I'll always do that job. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is the spirit that, whether it's an operator or a kilo, um, brings into that role, you know, that's what you can take away from that sort of thing. There seems to be this feeling in society that if you go away to war, if you join the military and you get sent overseas, 
that you have to come back with some type of problem issue, um, something's wrong with you, post-traumatic stress, uh, how did you handle it, it must have been horrible, all these, all these you know, horrible things that you must have seen, um, how did you deal with that? You know, and and it, that seems to be the, the constant rhetoric or the constant discussion around everything, right? How do you deal with it? How do you move on? For me, it, it was um, my experience. Uh, it's unpalatable for people to say, you know what, I actually enjoyed that. I enjoyed getting into those positions. Um, I enjoyed getting into those situations where I was tested. Uh, it was extremely unfortunate that some people got injured, got wounded and died. It, it really is, and it's, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible to come back and see However, I still stand by the fact that um, I enjoyed it. I loved it, and, and a lot of us did. We really, really did. We, and, and we should never be, I don't think we should ever be ashamed of that, that we love going away, we love serving our country, and we love doing that job. For me, it's really important that as a part of the, as a part of the growth, a part of dealing with that stress is actually enjoying it. Now, potentially from my own experience, before I even joined the military and, and having a few events happen in life, and lots of people do, you know, you learn, I learn not to look back on that, not to dwell on those things because it just holds you back. If done correctly, that training should have been a harder experience or, or more pressure than that actual event itself. Um, those experiences, we should be pre-combat veterans before we go into combat. Uh, um, it's kind of impossible, but Medics are a great, and kilos are a great example of that. The amount of training they do around trauma, the amount of training they do around multiple gunshot wounds, multiple amputations, you know, lots of different trauma, you know, the amount of training and, and development that they put into that before they go overseas and actually do it for real um, is huge because they need to have that skill at a point where they don't have to think about it. So roughly, roughly on that 2008 trip, I think out of our troop, it was probably maybe just under 50% of the troop were either wounded um, or, or, you know, with similar Sean McCarthy who was killed in action. He was initially wounded uh, in an IED blast uh, and, and subsequently kept alive um, by the kilo, by the medic, uh, Wal, or John Walter. And I, I won't go too much into the injuries, the nature of the injuries, However, um, essentially, um, Sean was, was ripped in half uh, from that IED blast. Uh, he was in a, uh, an extremely serious way, uh, and if it wasn't for the kilo, um, his chances were zero. Um, but with Wal there and the amount of amazing work that he did to be able to keep Sean uh, even alive for the amount of time that he did, that golden hour, as they talk about, uh, that one hour of from, from wounding to getting to um, better medical facilities, uh, from, from my best memory is that uh, Wal actually kept him alive beyond that. Uh, even though it was a very short period of time before that helicopter showed up, uh, beyond that golden hour, uh, Wal did beyond what was expected of him to be able to keep um, Sean and, and the condition that Sean was in beyond that golden hour. Uh, and again, just a testament to not only Wall himself, but the training uh, and the effort that those kilos go to to look after us. If there's any consolation for Sean's family is that to know that everything was possibly done within the, the, that intimate space when that happened to, to get Sean back to better care. And, and that's what they're there for.
For me, probably the most traumatic thing I saw during that period was uh, when the American was killed. Uh, he was shot through the head, but I had to take his helmet off uh, to put it put it on my own head for protection, for survivability. Uh, and then, you know, really the helmet was the only thing that was keeping his head together. Um, and, and putting that on and, and, you know, having all the brain matter and blood and everything else, you know, come down over your face. Uh, and then having to talk to his best mate who was next to me who was also wounded. And, you know, I'm trying to kind of apologise to, to this really nice Californian guy um, about what I was doing, you know, and, and he was good about it. But for me, that was probably, probably one of the most, you know, I guess, physically traumatic things I'd seen in that battle, you know, what I physically had to do. Um, but again, you know, what are you got to get done? What are you got to do to get through it? That's what I had to do. When we got back to base, you know, that's Wall was there, John Walter was there. He took over with the American medics and, and started the triage. You know, we had like, out of the 13 Australians, we had nine of them laid out on stretches, right? They were wounded. Uh, we had the other Americans that were wounded. Um, we had two Afghans that were wounded, you know. My buddy was shot through the head. It was his, it was his third day ever on combat. Right, it was his third day ever in combat and he was shot in the head. To have someone like Wall look after that one element, completely take control, prioritise whether they were Australians, they were Americans or they were Afghans, it didn't really matter. It was looking after those priorities of casualties. Um, and having him direct that, having him there to lean on when I was not as um, well medically trained as him or the PAFAs or anyone else that was there, the 18 Deltas, to be able to say, well, what do you want me to do next? You know, and for him just to give that simple direction of, you know, um, sort him out, look after that guy, knowing full well that it was at a level that, you know, I could probably handle, um, and and that it, it freed him up to worry about the more serious cases, uh, it was extremely important. You know, so I've been officially went into action twice. So I was blown up um, in an IED incident in 2008, uh, and I was also shot through the leg in 2012, or shot in the leg 2012. Once I'd actually um, realised what had happened, and I'd managed to roll away, and I ended up in a small ditch, um, probably like 20 feet, whatever it was, away from the uh, actual blast. Um, and I did my own quick assessment to make sure my toes, my fingers, and the other things that are important were still there, uh, and realised it wasn't too bad. Uh, it was a few minutes until Wall had come around and, and did another quick assessment and made sure I was pretty good and uh, made sure I was okay. So the second time I was wounded was a targeting operation. Um, you know, broke my own rule of, of you know, not moving unless covered. And uh, as I did that, whether he was shooting at me or the other guys that were just in front of me, I'm not sure. But uh, you know, he, he let off a couple of rounds before he had a stoppage, and, and one of those ended up in my leg. Getting shot feels strange. Um, I think, from my experience, it was it was just a, like a really really painful slap on the leg really painful slap on the leg um, burning sensation from the hot metal I guess uh, yet you know more than anything it just made me feel angry um, probably probably that overtakes everything yeah for me in my life I think a lot of my my own personal resilience came from I guess tragic events when I was a teenager my father died of a heart attack when I was 15 uh, you know which was a bit of a kick in the guts for a normal Australian family you know mum dad and two kids uh, have an older brother. To to then at 19, uh, my mother was um, murdered, and uh, the friend of hers that did it you know, had killed himself two days afterwards. Didn't leave any notes. Didn't leave any letters. 
um, about what had happened or her existence or where she was and, and even to this day she's still missing um, so you know back then I guess at being a relatively young age going through those sorts of things that it can shape and frame the way you approach different things in life uh, it definitely changed my opinion on on what hard is or what tragedy is or what resilience is uh, and and I think a lot of my own opinions around resilience was, was formed around that event around my mother. Uh, in particular was that choice, the choice to be a victim of what had just happened or a choice to be a product of what had just happened. And uh, everyone has some sort of tragic event or something that's difficult in their life, some more so than others. Um, but again, it's, it's got nothing to do with the measurement of which one's worse and which one's not. It's about how you deal with it, what you use it for and move forward. And again, I, I went, well, my thought process was, this is a gift. This is a gift of strength. This is a gift of power and this is a gift of resilience. If I can deal with this, right, then, then I should be able to deal with anything. I didn't leave any photos around. I don't keep any photos <clears throat> of my parents around the place. Um, not that I don't remember them. Uh, and it's not that I don't want to remember them, but the way I saw it was that's just a constant reminder of now what's not there. And again, for me, that's just holding me back. Um, I don't need to be reminded that they're not there. I know they're not there. You know, what's happened has happened. It's done, they're not coming back. They're not around. And, and, and if she turns up one day, then great. We can give her a proper burial. But uh, until then, you know, there's life to live and, and there's life to give to others. I think the hardest part for me, my mum's story is, it's probably on equal par, right? Is, is not knowing where she is, is, is pretty difficult. I think the other, the, the hardest part again for me is, is really knowing what happened right? and really piecing together what happened to her in her final moments and that, that trauma that she probably faced and that fear that she was under and what was she thinking in those last final moments. Um, they're the things that I'll never ever be able to know. Yet, you know, that's the hardest part for me, I think, is, is that. I think the positives around the trauma of my mum in particular, um, you know, in one aspect, I was parentless. Now, I was already an adult. I was already living my own life. But there's, there's something unique in the fact that all of a sudden you're on your own in the world. Now, lots of people go through that. Right? But you're physically on your own. And, and I think the silver lining for me around that was it forced me to figure it out. Um, there was no reliance on anyone else. There was no crutch. There was no fallback. I want to re raise resilient children. Um, how do I do that? I, I deprive them of things that they like. Uh, no, I don't really. I, I just try and let them and get them to understand that they can do without. Right? And if I can get them to understand that they can do without and then still succeed, for me, that's, that's an element of how to raise resilient children. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winger? <laughs> <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. <laughs> Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from.